Parashat Lech Lecha. We talked this morning a little bit about walking with God and seeking perfection, of course. This is the third parasha in Torah, uh, the first two, Parashat Bereshit and Noach. Um, the first two parashas span a time period of about 2,000 years. See, Avraham was born in the year 1948 from creation. And so the first two parashas span a time of about 2,000 years. And one can find that it takes about 10 pages in the very beginning, pages 1 through about 10 in your Bible, to span 2,000 years. That's a lot of time and not a lot of pages. Within that, of course, is the creation of the world and everything that is in it and um, the disobedience in the garden. And we see the flood, Noah and his family being spared, the Tower of Babel, and the dispersion of mankind all over the earth. That roughly takes about 2,000 years or apparently about 10 pages to cover in your Bible. However, in contrast to that, what we shift to in this week's parasha is a much slower time frame. This week's parasha, Parashat Laka, is what the Kumash calls the beginning of the era of Torah. This is the beginning of the era of Torah. What we have prior to this, the first 2,000 years, if you'd call it, the first two millennia, the Kumash calls it the era of desolation. Now, the sages here, I think, are really onto something. They don't bring it to its logical conclusion, but we can. So the sages say that the first 2,000 years of creation, roughly, pretty close, the era of desolation. Why? You have the fall of man. You have the flood, right? The Tower of Babel, lots of things that are desolate. But beginning with this week's Torah portion, Leklaka, it's roughly the year 2000-ish, maybe just before, from creation. And so that's the next era of about two millennia that they call the era of Torah. You have the patriarchs and you have all the prophets during this period of time. This makes a lot of sense. The era of Torah, that's what we get the Tanakh from ultimately, is that era. Which would mean the next era, roughly around the time Messiah was born, there would be another 2,000-year period. Maybe we could call it the era of Moshiach or something like that. Sages really don't go into that. But you could see the next 2,000-year period beginning about then. And that would include the life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua and the testimony of that and of the kingdom going all around the earth, which would put the end of all three of these eras at around the year 6,000 from creation. And we're pretty close to that right now at 5783. It all just kind of comes together. So as I noted in the opening, the first 2,000-year era spanned all of 10 pages in the Bible. And now, from page around 10 to the very end of Revelation, the Bible is about Abraham's family, basically, which, of course, culminates in Yeshua. Rav Lorberg comments, <clears throat> It would appear that the first two millennia were almost on a seemingly fast-forward mode, dwelling quite briefly on circumstances of historical value and importance. Today's parasha shows the wheels of history slow down to an appreciable mode, introducing us to our father Avraham, covering a span of about 100 years on five pages. It's almost as if Torah was in a hurry to bring us to Avraham and his life 
and his achievements as a result of his obedience to God's calling. Abraham, of course, is a very uh, pivotal figure. He demonstrated obedience. He had great faith, the qualities of righteous living. He pioneered monotheism and presents it to the world that knew nothing but idolatry at the time. And his life reflects the qualities of compassion, sensitivity, and kindness. One of his greatest attributes was probably perhaps human resilience in the midst of all the promises that he had. Abraham went through a lot in his uh, life, many downs. Okay, so let's read some Torah. Genesis chapter 12. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now Adonai said to Abraham, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, and away from your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who curses you, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went, as Adonai had said to him, <clears throat> and Lot went with him. Avram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Avram took his wife Sarai, his brother's son Lot, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, as well as the people they had acquired in Haran. Then they set out for the land of Canaan and entered the land of Canaan. Avram passed through the land to a place called Shechem, to the Oak of Moray, that Kena Ani were in the land, Adonai appeared to Avram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Adonai who had appeared to him. <clears throat> so certainly the plan of salvation is well underway, and Avraham is enjoying the blessings of God. So how does one merit this blessing? How does one achieve this status? And what does it take to follow in these footsteps that we know so well of Avraham? Rob Lorberg pointed me in his notes to Bereshit chapter 17, verse 1. And this is the key. Just over a couple pages. Bereshit, or Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, reads like this. When Avraham was 99 years old, Adonai appeared to Avraham and said to him, <clears throat> I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, Walk in my presence and be pure-hearted. That's what it is right there. Walk in my presence and be pure-hearted. There's two things in that. There's the walk and there's being pure-hearted. Let's start with pure-hearted. The Hebrew word right there for pure-hearted is tamim. And tamim, if you look it up on a little app on your phone or something, it implies perfection and wholeness and completeness. And this is not the first time we've seen this word, right? Uh, just last week, Bereshit chapter 6, verse 1 of Noah. I believe that would be the end of Bereshit, I suppose, so a couple weeks ago. Speaking of Noah, Bereshit chapter 6, verse 1 says, In his generation, Noah was a man righteous and wholehearted, or tamim. And Noah walked with God. Now, tamim does not mean sinless. Being wholehearted being pure-hearted, that does not mean sinless. Tamim does not mean sinless. Tamim is the same word used in animal sacrifices, right? Uh, means that they're unblemished. 
Now, an animal can be to me, or it cannot be. It can be suitable for sacrifice, or it cannot be. But since animals can't sin, then that really doesn't, really can't apply that sin to the word to me. Animals are, they're incapable of sin because they were not created as independent moral agents like we are. Certainly animals have feelings, and maybe there's bad ones. I know, remember when I had my lovely dog Lola, she would do things that were, make her a bad doggy, right? I'd catch her with her head in the litter box. I'd yell at her, get out of there. She'd come out, she'd feel bad. She knew she'd, you know, she could tell. She's hovering down low, looking up with me, at me with those big puppy eyes, with kitty litter all over her face. I don't think she thought she did something wrong. It's that she knew I was mad at her. That's why she acted like that. They don't have a sense of right or wrong. Animals just do what they do. She couldn't resist those delicious nuggets of goodness in there, right? I, that's what animals, that's how they are. They don't sin, they just do what their instincts tell them to. Animals can be tamim or not tamim, but that, that's not sinless. It means, being tamim means to be whole or to be complete or even perfect or unblemished. We see both with Avraham and with Noah that they were tamim, they were perfect in a, in a sense, whole, completeness, however you want to think of that word tamim. And this suggests that to be tamim is an attainable goal or objective that we should strive for in our walk of faith. Noah's walk in be tamim was to be an example to those of his generation. Avraham's goal, on the other hand, was to be an example for the descendants that were to follow him. One of those descendants would achieve perfection and secure life for us in the world to come. Of him, Yeshua, <clears throat> he tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says, therefore, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word be there, of course, is in the future tense, suggesting once again that being perfect, I'm using air quotes for those listening, being perfect is something that should be at least a goal or an objective for mankind to seek out. The standard, of course, the objective is Adonai, who is perfect. And so this walk for us will require a constant struggle as long as we are in our fleshly bodies. But to attain nearness to the standard of perfection and wholeness must be our constant aim. <clears throat> Adonai demands holiness of us while we are on this earth, but he does not suggest that we're going to be without sin, nor does he suggest we can attain absolute perfection either. Rather, he sets the standard before us, and it's up to us to try to get there. <clears throat> we need to try to be, to me, of course, um, to be whole. And uh, wholeness comes from Adonai, not from people or other things. You look at Noah and Avraham and Yeshua, their wholeness, their um, completeness came from God, not from the world. And it's hard for us to, especially I think in America, I think in many other countries that don't have the benefits that we have, cleaving to God is easier to do. I think because our country is so blessed and we have so much wealth that it's easy not to depend or cleave to God. It's easy to um, 
Everyone has food to eat for the most part and shelter. What people don't have is peace in their lives. They don't feel whole, and you see that manifested by um, <clears throat> the anger and just the unsettled people that are out there and just a general sense of unease. People seem lost. They might have everything that you would think someone would want, all the material possessions you could have. They could be movie stars. Somehow a lot of people seem lost and very unhappy. This is because wholeness only has one source, Adonai. Striving for being tamim, of course, is something that leads to being pure-hearted. <clears throat> the walk, of course, is how you get there. Let's turn to James chapter 1, page 1510. There's two parts to this. This shows some balance and some perspective here. When we talk about our walk and how we're supposed to live out this life, there's some great advice here and there's some great perspective. There's some great balance here as well. Um, verse 21, um, a few paragraphs down. So chapter 1, verse 21, there's some great advice here. James says, so rid yourselves of all vulgarity and obvious evil, right? That should be pretty quick to do. And receive meekly the word implanted you so that you can save your lives. Don't deceive yourselves by only hearing what the word says, but do it. For whoever hears the word but doesn't do what he says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror. When he looks at himself, he goes away and forgets what he looks like. Right? But if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah, which gives freedom and continues, becoming not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work it requires, then he will be blessed in all that he does. Of course, this here is sort of like preaching to the choir, especially here at Tree of Life. But there needs to be some perspective considered too. So let's keep reading these last couple verses here. Anyone who thinks he is religiously observant but does not control his tongue is deceiving himself and his observance counts for nothing. The religious observance that God the Father considers pure and faultless is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world. Lancaster comments on this. <clears throat> he said, you might assume that to walk with God simply means to keep his commandments, statutes, and judgments. It certainly does entail that, but that's not all of it. It's possible to be religious and far from God. The sages distinguished between walking in the ways of God and keeping the commandments. The sages explain that to walk in God's ways means to imitate him in the practice of godliness. If God is merciful, we should be merciful. If God is compassionate, we should be compassionate. It goes beyond the letter of the law or rote observance and reaches the spirit of the law. Someone who is walking with God is more concerned with the intention behind the commandments. And that brings godliness into the world. That's how the sages understood it. It's helpful for, for me to remind myself that my walk is for me and not for anyone else. There are many other paths that people are on, and that doesn't mean that I think every path is a good one. That's not my job. It does mean what is my job is that I show mercy and kindness and compassion to everyone I meet. I would hold people that are within these walls to um, a standard consistent with our walk in Torah, 
but everyone outside of these walls should be seeing us as kind and compassionate, yet serious and diligent in our faith. That's where our walk is. I think in the, in the past, that's where a lot of disciples of Yeshua have made bad examples of themselves and their walk in how they judge others and are critical of others. Whether they're right or they're wrong, it's not necessarily their job. Their job is to show kindness and compassion and mercy and make disciples, things like that. That's the walk. Walk in my presence and be pure-hearted. So let us be diligent in the study of Torah, of course. It's a light to our feet, our feet and it guides our path. Let us take on more and more Torah, of course, as he reveals it to us. And let us seek that perfection as our Messiah implored us. <clears throat> we want to be ever aware that he's with us, of course, at all times. And we want to let that awareness help us to be better, to be tamim, and to help us walk closer to him. May we all walk in his presence and be pure-hearted. Shabbat shalom.